0: Welcome to the All of Life podcast from Redemption Church Tempe, where we have conversations on faith, culture, theology, and beyond to help us live all
1: of life, all for Jesus. Let's jump into today's episode.
2: Good evening, everyone. If I get your attention, my name is Jim Mullins. I'm I'm one of the pastors Around here, it's good to be with you. Welcome to First Wednesday. This is our night where we reflect on this big statement that we have that all of life is all for Jesus. So we take different aspects of God's world, sports, art, tonight, end time stuff, and we reflect on, what does it mean to live this out before the face of God? How do we engage this stuff thoughtfully? So. I'm gonna get us rolling here in a minute, but first I wanna give you a question. I wanna give you a hypothetical scenario to discuss on your tables. So I want you to imagine a basketball game. You got it in your mind? NBA game, college, FIBA, whatever you want. Now imagine you are a player on that team. You've gained a ton of skill and now you're a player on that team. You're down by how many points? 48. 48? <laughs> you are down by 48 points. But then in the second half, the player, the, the, the one that you know is the, the best player who's come to save the day, shows up, puts on the jersey, and is ready to step On the court. LeBron LeBron shows up to your intramural YMCA game. You've all been, you've all seen the Disney movie. You know how this ends, right? But I'm gonna give you two scenarios, two endings. Who did the Choose Your Own Adventure books as a kid, all right? I'm gonna give you two options here. Option one, the LeBron James steps in, plays a phenomenal game, rallies the team around, and hits the game-winning shot at the last second, and everyone goes wild. That's option one. Option two, LeBron James comes onto the court, and he yells at everybody. He says, hey, we're down by too much. I got a van running. Let's get in the van and let's get out of here. And so he takes a bunch of people. Some people get left behind and you jump into a, you jump into a van and, and he drives off. And just as you get enough distance away, he shoots a, a missile and blows up the stadium. <laughs> option A and option B. Who would choose option A? Who would choose option B for your story? (laughs) I like the honest contrarians over here. Uh, Here's the question. If you're a player on the team and you know how things are going to end, how would option A affect the way you play the game? And how would option B affect the way you play the game? Go ahead and discuss at your tables and I'll bring us back in just a moment. All right, let's go ahead and bring it back in. I imagine you had some fun discussion there. But the main thing I would love to drive home is how the story ends really does affect how you live within the middle of the story. If, the, if, if it's all about LeBron James is gonna shoot a bazooka at the stadium, there's no use, it's worthless to even put any effort Uh, into it. But if you know he's going to come and win the game, you know that there is, you can put your effort out there, but there's actually hope coming. Um, How the story ends and the way that we conceive of how the story ends frames how we live our lives today. And so today we're talking about, you know, we have got our crazy title here, End Times, Ethics, and Other Awkward Conversations with Your Crazy Uncle. End times, the word eschatology kind of means last things. It's about how the story ends, but also much more than that. God's intervention to rescue a broken world. Um, ethics, how do we live in our daily life? How do we live all of life? And how, how does the end of the story shape the way that we engage in our, our work, our art, our families, our, uh, our friendships, our, the public life? And then conversations with your crazy uncle. When I hear people often over the years um, talk about when, when eschatology or revelation or something like that is brought up, often the response they'll get say, I'm not into that. I don't want to engage that. I have some crazy uncle who's always sending me emails and stuff. <laughs> uh, and, and I just, like, I'm not about the charts and things like that. Well, tonight, we wanna, I want to introduce you to a, new, a few other crazy uncles. Josh Butler is going to give a talk. Vincent <laughs> Baycote is going to give a talk. These are, are going to be your new crazy uncles, and they are going to give some good, helpful things to, to help you engage because the stuff does matter. Three things I want us to remember tonight. Um, number one is that this is an open-handed issue that people within redemption and even amongst the redemption leadership have differing opinions on the nuances of eschatology, and you can as well. Like, there's freedom there, you're welcome here, you have a place here, and it's an open-handed issue. Number two is, though, I don't want the speakers to walk on eggshells. So I say, share your opinions. Like, give us where you're at with stuff and um, and you can evaluate it, so um, we're gonna we're gonna do that. Who, who wants them walking on eggshells and saying nothing? Nobody, all right, so don't be easily offended. Uh, number three, um, tonight will be a little bit less about the specific details of like, what are the bulls and what, what do the horns represent, and more about the larger frameworks on how do we approach uh, eschatology and the end and revelation and things like that in a way that nourishes us and draws us closer to Christ and helps us live for him rather than uh, to just have fun, interesting speculation about, um, you know, some dude in the European Union who's the Antichrist or something like that. So that's the framework for tonight. I'm going to pray for us and then Josh is going to come up and uh, get us rolling tonight. Father, we are grateful that um, that the world and every square inch of it belongs to you and that you are a redeemer, that you are a rescuer. God, we thank you for sending your son to rescue and to return and to renew and restore all that's broken. And uh, we pray that tonight we would just have a, That you would sharpen our, our thinking, that you'd provoke thoughts, and that that wouldn't just sit in our head, but it would affect the way that we engage your real world. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, your first crazy uncle, come on up.
0: Sweet. Good evening. All right, well, when you hear the phrase, the end of the world, what first comes to mind? In pop culture today, we have like a meteorite smashing into earth. Uh, We've got alien invasions. We've got the sun burning out with cold darkness left. You've got a Cormac McCarthy-esque wasteland. You've got kind of walking dead zombie territory, right? Yet the end of the world is actually a wedding Revelation 21, 22, the end of the world is actually a wedding where God is uniting heaven and earth. He's reconciling creation to himself. He's dealing with sin and evil, and he's restoring and establishing his kingdom forever. It's a picture of our union with God for eternity and the healing and restoration of creation. Now that, what is the end of the world? That's just one misconception. I actually want to try and talk tonight about five misconceptions. The title for this talk tonight is Why I Want to Be Left Behind. Five Misconceptions About the End Times, right? And so what do I mean by that, Left Behind? Well, Left Behind is a famous book series that sold like over 80 million uh, copies and there have been movies made about it, uh, like this one with Nicolas Cage. Um, And Left Behind uh, is premised on the idea of the rapture. And it's uh, the the basic context is like uh, the rapture happens, which means everyone kind of gets whisked away and vanishes uh, up into heaven, all the Christians do. And so that means like pilots are, you know, out of the airplane, and airplanes are crashing, and cars are crashing into one another because all these people are gone, and uh, and then the remaining people are kind of left behind, and so those who are saved are taken, and those who remain are left behind, and they've got to deal with kind of the horrific aftermath and all. Now, uh, let's start with the first misconception there, I think. Let's start with the rapture, right? Uh, if you hold the rapture, as Jim said, this is a debatable issue, so uh, no, no shame, but I want to address you why I don't, at least, right? Like, so, I think some things to consider when it comes to the rapture. Uh, a few observations. First, the rapture is a very new idea. Uh, it began, it arose in the late 1800s. There was a young 15-year-old Scottish girl named Margaret MacDonald who claimed to have had this revealed to her in a vision in Scotland. And J.N. Darby, a famous America, or a famous British preacher, kind of picked it up and then spread uh, this, thing, uh, this idea as he was traveling through the Americas. Now, it doesn't mean it's wrong, but it's a pretty short track record over 2,000 years of Christian history, so we should probably have our curiosity peak, is it actually legit? And so is it biblical? So two, let's look at uh, the two biblical passages that are often used to support it. The first is Matthew 24, where Jesus says this, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. And he goes on to talk about how the flood came and they were swept away. And then he says, two men will be left, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Now, it's pretty straightforward, right? Jesus, Son of Man, comes back. Some are taken, and some are left behind. The problem is this. Taken means killed, right? Like, if you're talking about the days of Noah, what did it mean to get taken away by the flood? It meant to get taken out. Dead, killed, dunzo, judgment of God, right? You wanted to be left behind behind, right? So, in this context, Jesus confirms this, that he says in this passage that people were partying it up, uh, eating and drinking in his day, kind of just rocking on in the midst of crazy injustice and all that. And, he, and so, he says uh, in verse uh, 39 here, he says, they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. To be taken means to be judged, if you lived in Noah's day, uh, you didn't want to get taken, you wanted to be left behind, and that's the context of what Jesus is saying. Uh, so when I hear people use, like, taken, taken, I want to get taken, uh, I feel like an ego Montoya going, you keep on using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means, right? all right so let's go on the other next passage that's used to support the rapture first thessalonians 4 where paul comforts those who have lost loved ones with the hope of resurrection he says christ will return and at the sound of the trumpet the dead in christ will rise first uh, after that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the lord in the air now at first glance that could look like the rapture, but how has this been historically understood? In the ancient Roman Empire, uh, when the emperor came to visit a city or a high-ranking official or leader, those who were loyal to Rome would depart the city. they go outside the city to go meet the emperor outside of the city and then join his triumphant procession in. And so I think the idea here, the same picture is kind of happening where Jesus is returning from heaven to earth to establish his kingdom. And the picture is that we who are still alive will be caught up with him to join his triumphant procession back Down, right? Not up into the clouds and ethereal playing harps, but down as Jesus is establishing his kingdom on earth as in heaven for eternity, which is at the climax of Revelation. So, my recommendation, uh, don't get taken by rapture theology, pun intended. You want to be left behind, right? Our hope is not escapist, fear-based self-preservation, uh, like Jim's basketball analogy. It's not LeBron taking all the players off the court and blowing up the stadium. Rather, it is courageously loving, sacrificially suffering, and redemptively hopeful in the midst of a world marked by evil, all right? All right, let's talk about our second misconception, the beast. This is another uh, prominent image that gets talked about a lot. Out a lot in, and left behind, the beast is a person. He's kind of like this individual who arises to become like this dictator and this one-world ruler and all that. And what's interesting, though, is that, uh, well, and the implication there is that we need to be on the lookout for, is it the head of the United Nations? Is it the head of some country? Is it our, our country? Is it, you know, like people are kind of skepti- uh man, trying to find the person, right? Yet what's interesting is that this, in the Bible, beasts are actually symb- symbols for empires. They're actually symbolic uh, representatives for empires. For example, Daniel 7 is a famous and important passage in the Old Testament. And in Daniel 7, he sees these, this apocalyptic vision with four beasts that arise and are rampaging on the earth. And he's actually given the interpretation. An angel explains to him what these beasts mean. And it says these beasts are these four kingdoms who are going to arise and who are going to trample the earth. And these have historically been understood to be Babylon sequentially, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, and then Rome. And in fact, Daniel asks, well, what's this fourth beast? It's like the biggest and the craziest and the gnarliest. And the angel says this to him. He says, the fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. And so in apocalyptic context in the Bible, beasts tend to be a, they're a succession of empires and they represent kind of the bestial nature of humanity and rebelling against God that we are losing kind of our image-bearing at one level, like we're, we're dehumanizing ourselves in some ways and becoming more and more brutal towards one another. We're becoming like beasts. And the implication there is that uh, I think the point is not so much to be looking out for where's the one bad guy and more to be attentive and alert to what are the empires, what are the political, social, structural, uh, the context that we live in that put pressure on us to live apart from God's kingdom, to not live in alignment with God's kingdom. So... And this is a good note for how to interpret apocalyptic imagery when it comes to Revelation, right, where a lot of these misconceptions come from, uh, that the way Revelation was written, it was most people did not read it. They couldn't read. The way Revelation was intended to be read, it was read dramatically out loud in church services. I actually heard someone recite it from memory once, and it, and it was dramatic, and it was powerful. It was really powerful to hear it And when you hear it in that kind of literature, one of the clues you do is you repeat the key word that you want people to pay attention to. Once you start looking at Revelation through that grid, you start to see what are the key things that John, the author, wants you to pay attention to. And you've got the church, the church, the church, the church, the throne, the throne, the throne, the throne, the 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 lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the beast, the beast, the beast, the beast. And many of the things that we tend to get hung up on, what's 666, what's the deal, and what's the millennium, all these things, are not the major emphases, right? Once you look at that grid, you start seeing, oh, the throne, that's God's kingdom throne. Uh, when you look in the Old Testament, the throne is this image for God's kingdom rule over all the earth. The lamb is an image for Christ's atoning sacrifice to reconcile us to God. And when that's, that, that's helpful context is going, we Re- Revelation, it's saturated in Old Testament imagery. And I think a lot of the misconceptions come because people don't, we don't know our Old Testament. And what you have to do is kind of plug those symbols back in their Old Testament context. So God on a heavenly throne doesn't mean he's on a lazy boy up in heaven, kicking back, trying to watch you, right? It means that God rules over all creation. And Jesus being a lamb doesn't mean he's like chewing the cud, you know, and eating eating grass and whatever. Like, no, it means he's the atoning sacrifice. It's temple imagery for the sin of the world. And so, what we have to do in approaching symbols like these is place them in the broader biblical story and see them against their Old Testament backdrop. Okay. Still, though, let's look at 666, our third misconception, the mark of the beast, right? So... 666, this is one of the most famous things that gets floated around um, for going, man, what is 666? Where's the mark of the beast coming? Uh, you know, I've heard that in some fundamentalist communities, like if you get behind someone at the grocery store and they're a fundamentalist and they, they, the, the counter rings up as like, you know, 66 cents, they'll go get a candy bar or something to like get the number to go up a little more. And they, they don't want to be associated with 666, right? Um, And even recently, I mean, I don't know if you saw, I saw in like the pandemic, a lot of people were going, man, is the COVID vaccine, is that 666? Like, what's going on? Is that the mark of the beast? And I think it's helpful to take a step back and go, no. (laughs) So (laughs) 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 So, Let let me give a few quick observations here. Uh, one, numbers are symbolic in the Bible. Often they're often used symbolically, especially in Revelation. And in the Bible, seven is a number for completion. You think on the seventh day, God finished creation, and we have a seven-day week that God has made When The seventh day is the day of rest where we commune with God and one another. And similarly, six is a day associated with humanity. And so God creates humanity on the sixth day, and sixth kind of falls short of perfection in biblical literature, right? And so there's a sense of 666, uh, six, six, I think it speaks partly to humanity as far as we can get on our own, apart from God, before this 777, God's ultimate Sabbath rest. But another thing, the most prominent is, well, here's it. It's probably Emperor Nero, right? This is second, the second observation here. The dominant understanding in church history has been that 666 was uh, signed for Emperor Nero. And here's why. If you read in this passage, Revelation 13, 18, John says this. He says, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And he goes on to say "66." Now, around the time Revelation was written, the church is facing persecution, and Emperor Nero was the worst of them all, right? And so he blames the Christians for bad things that are happening in the empire. He's going after just killing masses of people who are following Jesus. And John, rather than kind of right out saying, hey, it's Emperor Nero, because if the Romans get the thing, you know, the tractor, the the book of Revelation, they're going to go, oh, man, this is anti, this is seditious. Rather, he gives them a clue that's easy to understand because in Emperor Nero's name in Hebrew, you add up the... Le- in Hebrew, letters have a numerical association. You re- you add up the letters in Nero's name and it adds up to, guess what? Six, 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 right? So uh, throughout history, many have believed man, This is a sign of... Um, Emperor Nero, and maybe him even as a sign of ultimately like this, you know, uh, rebellion against God and the use of the empire to persecute the church. Uh, one final thought on the beast is even if it's not, even if it's something more, um, another major feature of 66 is what it does. It gives you access to the global economy. Uh, John says in verse 16 here, he says, it causes all both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. The emphasis is on Babylon as a global economy. And so, uh, Babylon being this picture for global, uh, global empire, the global international economy in Revelation, it's more economically centered than politically centered, so it's not so much like one world government. It's more like this economic system that the kings and merchants of the earth all participate in and contribute in. And my take personally, like, we've been building that for centuries, you know? Um, and so, when, when you think what gives you access to the international global economy, I think, I think it's, you know, if we're too concerned about how oh, they're trying to put a microchip in my arm or whatever else, you know, like I actually have something that every time I go to the store, I imagine John seeing me in a vision and like, dude, I got my mark in my hand and I kind of swipe it by and I pay and I get access to money and the whole deal, right? Like, all I'm saying is it may be way more, that, that's my credit card, by the way, right? All I'm saying is some of these things like actually may be way more close than we, we think. I don't think it's the case that like, God's tricking us, like, oh, you just weren't paying close enough attention. I think it's the case of John is calling out things that compromise our allegiance to Christ and our witness to Christ. All right, let me wrap up here. I'm going to do four because I'm going long. So last one is this. Let's go back to the wedding. The end of the world is a wedding. And what does that mean? So Revelation 21, the way the story ends is this wedding of Christ and His church, and what do weddings celebrate? They celebrate union, and this wedding is no different. Union is all over the end of the world. We've got the union of heaven and earth as God and humanity dwell together forever. We've got the union of east and west as the nations come streaming to feast in God's kingdom and celebrate. We've got the union of weak and strong as The tears of the suffering are wiped away, and the kings of the earth bring their glory to lay before the feet of Christ the King. And we've got the reconciliation of good folks and bad folks together belting out the song of the Lamb once slain who covers us all. We're only there by grace, right? And this means how do you prepare for the end of the world? Well, it's not by stockpiling ammo and canned food and whatever else and hunkering down and living off the grid or whatever. Like the way, if the end of the world is a wedding, then the way that you prepare for the end of the world is by becoming a lover of God. Thanks.
2: All right, well, we are going to, uh, I'm gonna kick a question to you real quick. Um, He was supposed to, and then, uh, so I'm thinking of one real quick. Um, Here's my question for you. Um, imagine that you are a early, um, early Christian and you get the the book of Revelation and you are reading it in community. How are the things in that book going to help you through your life of suffering? So go ahead and discuss that now and then I'll introduce our second speaker in just a moment. All right. It's time for your second crazy uncle. Your second crazy uncle is Vincent Baycote. He's a professor of theology at Wheaton. He directs the Center for Applied Christian Ethics. He's written some really good books. One of them is The Political Disciple. Um, he is a guy I respect a ton. And believe it or not, over the years, we've, uh, we've had a number of speakers come back for First Wednesday, but I think he's the only person we've had four times. So, yeah. So, um, come on up Vince and uh, lead us. We appreciate you a ton. Give him a second hand so it's a little less awkward.
1: Good evening and thank you for that pressure. Uh, it's like, hey, it's great. He, he, now it's number four, and now, now what will happen with number four? Well, it's great, it's great to be here. Um, I, I was telling someone earlier that, uh, you know, all the other times when I came, it was cooler when I came. <laughs> so now, now, now I know about um, the full Phoenix area experience, I guess. So... Um, but, but it's, it's, it's great to be here. I, I love what uh, redemption does, and it's a great privilege to, to be with you this evening. So, first thing I want to talk about when we're talking about eschatology is to think about the following. When people think about eschatology, if I say, okay, eschatology, what do you think about? Chances are you're thinking about the book of Revelation probably, which is an understandable thing to think about. But what if you thought about Genesis instead of Revelation when you're thinking about eschatology? Because what, what is eschatology about? It's really about the end of the story, right? And so, and so how do we think about getting to the end of the story? So first thing I want us to do is to go back to the beginning not Genesis one but to genesis three so in genesis three there's you know things go south in genesis three as we know right you don't say hey you know did god really say you know i'll bet that fruit it's really good for you it'll make you magnificent and then everything goes downhill so when, after god shows up And after he talks, after he confronts them, notice what he says in verse 15 of Genesis 3. So he's talking to the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you and you shall bruise his heel, or you'll bruise his heel, he'll crush your head, in other other translations say. Some people call this the early version of the gospel, or proto evangelion is what people say. And the point is, is that if you take this as the early version of the gospel, if the head of Satan is going to be crushed, if he's crushed, then what does that tell you about where all of this is going? So yes, it's going south, but it's not going to stay south, right? In fact, it's going to get better. Bad times are coming now, but bad times are not the last word. Very often when people think about Genesis 3 and they think about the fall, isn't it interesting to think about the fact that people speak about the fall as if it really is telling us that now the fall has come, welcome to futility but even in what happens in the curse Adam and eve are being told that there's not futility why because eve is still going to have children it gets complicated but she's still going to have children adam's still going to work the ground and now there's going to be weeds and thorns and thistles and labor by the sweat of his his brow and the ground's going to be hard it's not going to be so friendly anymore but there's still going to be fruitfulness. In other words, it's still going somewhere, right? It's not, it's not like, okay, hey, just get ready for a sort of carousel of horror and then, you know, just deal with it. No, actually, it's going somewhere. And ultimately where it's going is that the enemy is going to be vanquished. And when does the enemy get vanquished? At the end of the story. So the point is, is that really you're already starting to have eschatology at the beginning, not just in the last pages of the Bible. And not only there, not only there, I want you to think about another part of Genesis, and that's in Genesis chapter 12. So in Genesis chapter 12, we meet this nomad named Abram. And he's minding his own business, doing what, what he does with his family. And God says, hey, I have a special mission for you. Right. And so he tells him to you know, leave your relatively cushy nomadic life, if such things could be cushy. And then what do I want you to do? I want you to go to a land that I am going to show you. And here's the the important part that I want you to notice. It's at the end of verse 3. I'll bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you, I will curse, because in, in you, all the families or all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. So what is that? Right? I mean, is that just about the fact that there's going to be a people? What is the culmination of that blessing? So... Think about what happens in the book of Acts. Peter goes up on the roof. He has has a vision about a sheet that comes down. It's it's basically telling him what? Hey, Gentiles are coming into this. This is not going to be just a Jewish sect. Actually, Gentiles are going to be coming into the people of God. The people of God are going to broaden from being a single ethnic group to being a multi-ethnic family. And so all the people from all the peoples of the earth are now going to come into this, and they're all going to have access to this blessing. And we see the culmination of that blessing in Revelation. Revelation 5-9 is telling us that Jesus dies for people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And in Revelation 7-9, we have that great vision for people from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping him. So you already have, in Genesis 12, telling you that this blessing is going to come. And all the people being blessed isn't just like, hey, it's great you get some benefit by having a relationship with God. No, in the end, people from all the earth are going to be with God. So already in the book of Genesis, you're beginning to have eschatology. Now usually when people talk about eschatology, Genesis is not what they're talking about. But it's all starting. Think about what the gospel is all about. Why is the gospel ultimately good news? Right? It's ultimately good news because God wins. And those who relate to him win in the end. That's why. right? And so the fact is, is that if you're thinking about gospel, you're thinking about eschatology. It's true that because of um, various associations, we shall say, Uh, in various things like bad cinema that we just had um, reference to. And I guess, full disclosure, I should tell you that I sometimes, not for kicks, but for educational purposes, I do show one of my classes clips from eschatological films of different eras. They're not... I don't show them because they're high-quality cinema. Let's put it that way. (laughs) But I do show them because they're influential and because they captured the eschatological imagination of many people. So that when people think about eschatology, what are they thinking about? They're thinking about a lot of things Joshua's just telling you about. And my point by starting with Genesis is here is, that, okay, we're not talking about any of that stuff. We're talking about God attending to the world that he made and not giving up on the world he made, right? And that he's going to bring, the, bring at the end to fruition his plans for the world that he made. So eschatology, if you you want to think about it this way, is how God is going to bring the greatest news of all. The world that he made is actually going to be taken care of by him. It's not going to be left to some horror movie of sin. So eschatology comes early in the story. It's not just at the end. Now, with eschatology, and and, and some of this was, was highlighted by what Josh said, you do run into some tensions. So there's three texts I want to talk about briefly that show us certain tensions because you have to think about what comes with judgment and you have to think about what's actually going to happen at the end. What is God going to do with this world when, when we get to the end? So Romans 8 Very interesting text. Romans 8, starting at verse 19. And we're going to get to Romans 8. Uh, Yes, now, here we are. All right. So here's what Paul says in Romans 8, starting at verse 19. has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so the point is, is that it's... When Paul's talking about what's going to happen here, he's he's mainly talking to the Romans about about themselves, about their lives and about what's going on in, in their challenging situation, but he's also telling them that the creation itself has been waiting. In other words, it's waiting for God to renew it, waiting for God to transform it. And the point I just want to highlight about this text is that if you're taking this text seriously, you can't think about eschatology primarily in a certain kind of cataclysmic way. And sometimes when people talk about eschatology, just in terms of popular versions of it, it often has to do with some kind of suggestion that some explosion is going to happen, some kind of incineration of all things is going to happen. This text tells us the creation is going to have its renewal. That's what the creation is waiting for. And notice, by the way, that that, that he's saying that in continuity with what we are waiting for. And why should that not surprise us? It shouldn't surprise us if you think about from what are we taken? From what is the man formed? From the dust of the ground. And, and isn't it interesting that if you think about your redemption from the dust of the ground, say, hey, God's going to take care of me. What's he going to do to the earth? Oh, he's going to blast it. Isn't that a strange discontinuity? It's like, wait a second, wait a second. but what, what do you come from? What do people say at funerals? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, returning to the earth, they say. So it shouldn't surprise us, actually, that there's a relationship between him talking about us waiting for our transformation and the whole creation itself waiting for his transformation. It shouldn't surprise us, but a lot of times when people talk about eschatology, there's this strange discontinuity. Yes, renewal for us, too bad for the earth. Now, here's the tension. Here's the tension. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Some people interpret this as good reason for what I sometimes like to call, for those of you who are fans of certain Star Wars movies, explosion of the Death Star eschatology. I mean, it is spectacular, right? I mean, it's amazing, incredible special effects, and and, you you, you even get to blow up a planet at one point. But... Is that really what God is going to do? So let's read the text, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, that's what this ESV translation says. Others says the earth and everything will be burned up. All right, so depending upon your translation... It doesn't talk about everything being exposed, but I'm glad that this translation says that because it's telling you about what's actually going on. Verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So there are people who read this and say, well, it looks to me like that's one divine incinerator, is what they, they said. Now, I want to tell you why, if you're reading this in context, you can't have that interpretation. Let's go to what's earlier in the text. So, in verse 5, because he's talking about people who are scoffing about the fact that Jesus has not yet returned, he says, They deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. For by the same word, of the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now here's the thing. How many of you, when you talk about the story of Noah, you go, you know what happened? And it was the most amazing flood of all. It was a flood over the entire earth, and it actually washed away the entire globe. So, how many of you, when you talk about the story of Noah, that's what you, that's what you say. You know what God did. He destroyed it. He did what? He washed it all away. There was nothing. And then he created Mount Ararat somehow. Now, is, is, that, is that how you tell the story about it? It probably isn't, right? And my point is is that what's the parallel, right? That judgment came and it was by water and judgment's going to come and it's by some kind of fiery thing, but it's not about a Death Star explosion. It is about a judgment where nobody can hide. It is a refiner's fire, a renewing fire. Yes, a judgment, but also a renewing. So, It's not actually, I think, in terms of this text, a destruction of the Death Star type of eschatology. God is committed to his work. And one more text to try to bring this home. Then I'm going to hand over to Jim to raise another question to you. And that's in the book of Colossians. In the book of Colossians, chapter 1, there's this great exaltation of Jesus. And listen to what it says in this great exaltation of Jesus in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For in him, Jesus, who's fully divine and fully human, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, it's hard to make a reconciliation to all things on earth if that means, here's, you know what kind of reconciliation it is? It's actually one that involves blowing up the planet. <laughs> if all things are made by him and for him, because the earlier verses say that, why are they made for him? Why were they made for him? Well, because he likes to dynamite things. That's why. Is that, no, that's not why, right? And think about this. This text is talking about a Jesus who did what? Become flesh. Isn't it a strange thing to have an incarnation where Jesus becomes flesh, and yet he despises the earth from which human beings come? It's a strange thing, right? I mean, and, and, and I always think about when people when people talk about Jesus and his resurrection, et cetera, I mean, it's also like when people talk about personal eschatology and they talk about, you know, it's going to be great when we're in heaven, et cetera, et cetera. And what what are they basically saying? They're saying, when we get to heaven and guess what? When we're all in this great, permanent, disembodied state, to which I was like, to which I want to say, then why do you even celebrate Easter? Because what happens on Easter? Jesus is raised in a what? A body? When he shows up to the disciples and he talks to them and Thomas isn't there and Thomas comes back, what did he tell Thomas? Thomas, you know what you can do? You can touch this. You can feel this. Right? In other words, he's in a body. He's not some kind of holy hologram. Right. No, he's the real thing in a resurrected body. Right. Where if you put his hands here and he's doing this, There's weight, and it's touching this. Not, it's like, wow, his hand just went right through it. It was amazing. Nope, nope. My point being, then, is that if he's incarnate in the flesh, and if all things are created by him and for him, it's very hard to have an eschatology that's opposed to God saying that in the end, what, what am I committed to? I'm committed to reclaiming, renewing, transforming this world. You, you really, we can't escape it. And what's also coming along with all this, I and mean, if we think about what eschatology is in this big frame, Jesus is returning. We are resurrected to eternal life. When, when all this comes, when Jesus returns, and all things are for him, Right? The kingdom of God is completely established. The kingdom of God that he announces at the beginning of his ministry. The, the heavens and the earth are renewed, and there's final justice when judgment comes. All of those things come with eschatology, right? You know, the, end, the end of all things when God shows that he's truly committed to the world that he has made and that he's going to bring it to an incredible culmination. All right, Jim.
2: All right. So we're going to have a a part two. Uh, Vince is going to come up and he's going to talk about a few of the areas of life that are affected by the way that we engage eschatology. But what I want you to do is I want you to discuss around your tables I want to give you a challenge. I want you to discuss what are some areas of life that you can't even conceive of as being affected by eschatology. Like, for instance, your consumption of tacos. What does eschatology have to do with consumption of tacos? So dream up around your table some topics that you think there's no way that eschatology affects this. And then if you get some good ones, text them in. We've got the text-in number here. Um, This is actually... My, my secondary number that I use to prank uh, Jason Raber. So um, <laughs> you can just send it in there and I'll get, I'll get those as, long, as well as any other questions that you have. So I'm going to give us a few minutes to discuss that. Then Vince will come up and then we'll have a time of Q&A. So go.
1: Well, I guess there must be some very exciting ideas going on because I hear lots of fervent conversation. Or maybe it's desperate conversation. I don't know. But um, here's what I'd like us to think about uh, when we're thinking about eschatology and the so what of it. Because sometimes what happens is The way you think about the end, it does affect how you live in the present. If your view of eschatology, for example, is one that says, hey, it's all going to burn anyway, right? Or, hey, Jesus is coming back next week, then the inclination is to say, just don't sweat anything down here, right? Get ready to check out eschatology that orients people to check out, but if it's what I just shared with you, where we can't escape the fact that God is going to finish what he started, right? where we start in the garden and end in the city, then we have to think differently about eschatology and, and, and how it helps us to inhabit our everyday lives now. So think about elements of eschatology like these eyeglasses that I have, right? Be- because I have a particular prescription, I'm able to see you, right? It'd be more blurry if I had a different prescription or if I had the prescription that I had back in the 80s. There was a thing called the 80s, just let some of you know about that, like, dating myself. But, 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 but if you have a particular prescription, it, it helps you to see things in a certain way. And so what if when you're thinking about how you're looking at our lives, you're thinking about, you know, how does the fact that there's going to be a bodily resurrection, what does that that tell me about how I should think about embodiment? What about the fact that there is going to be justice, that people are going to answer to God, that God cares about what people do, and people have to answer to him? What about the fact that there's going to be a new heaven and new earth? I mean, when you're taking those kinds of factors, and they are the things that are grinding the lenses of your perception when you're thinking about what goes on in life, then the question is, how is that helping you to see what's there? And how is it helping you to think about what your purpose is now? Or even what kind of person to be? Now, before before I talk about a couple of topics, this is really important. With everything that I've just said, sometimes what can happen is people think that if you're talking about eschatology informing or influencing how we live now, some people think that means, oh, so all, all, what you're really saying, Vince, is how do you do your best to put into place the kingdom of God now, that you try to do a realizing of the kingdom now, right? And so I just want to say that that's a potential hazard, and what I want to suggest instead of talking about establishing or building the kingdom is how do we gesture toward the kingdom. It's like if you've never been somewhere before, and you have some idea of what is there, and somebody says, well, tell me what it's like, tell me what it's like. And you go, well, I think it's something like, right? And here's why I think that that's a good way to do it. If you're taking that more experimental approach to things, you take the weight off yourself of saying, I will show you precisely how things are going to be in the realized kingdom of God. Now, the thing is that humans just don't have that good of a vision. Right? Our vision's kind of dim. So if if that's what's true about us, then we shouldn't be talking about it's going to be exactly like this. But we can, I think, say, well, it might be like this. So if we we think about it, it could be like this, it might be like this. In other words, if we try to catalyze our imaginations and say what it might be like, I think that can help us to think about how we ought to live in ways that are reflecting the kingdom, kind of like a if you've, if you've gone to the movies and you've seen coming attractions and you're thinking I don't know exactly what that movie's about but I sort of know where it's going right have you, ever, have you ever seen some, some coming some trailers are good you get what the movie's about other trailers you're like I know that there's like this interesting music and all this stuff is happening but I can't tell you where this thing is going right so so may, maybe that, that that's by, by, might be all that you can do right? So you can, you can give a kind of coming attraction, but you can't give the whole movie. So wh- what kind of coming attractions, what kind of gestures can you give in areas like technology? Now, important thing to say about technology, what do we even mean when we say that? Sometimes people say, you know, I love this. I hate this. I love this. I hate this. Well, okay, that's, one thing when we're talking about technology. I mean, do you hate the fact that we have lights in this room? That, that we have running water? That we have highways instead of dirt roads? Right? That, 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 it, it, I mean, the point I'm making is, is that technology is all around us. Things that people are doing in crafting creation for our use, hopefully in ways oriented to flourishing, and hopefully in ways that, that are bringing honor to God. And it creates there are possibilities that happen with these things that can be directed towards good ends or bad ends. right? So you know, I came here on an airplane. Planes are great. Planes can also drop bombs. Right? And the point is, then, is, is, is aviation the problem? Right? Is faster transportation the problem? So when we're thinking about technology, I mean, how do we relate to this? Because it's true that some people who are intoxicated by it, well, they might like to think, you know, just let me keep building my version of the Tower of Babel. And, you know, and I, would give you the, I would give you a better world, a new world. That's something to avoid. But how can we think about using technology in ways where we're helping to facilitate flourishing? Where even how we make our lives better without moving towards making our lives better in ways like I saw the other day a, a story where there's a guy that had something implanted in himself so that he he can use it to, like, open his doors, so, you know, in other words. So there are people who are very interested in thinking about trying to do this kind of transhumanist type of thing. It's an early, it's an early version of that. We don't want to go that far. But what are the ways that technology can be helpful to us? Another topic. We all, you know, think about work, business, economics, it's all around us. How do you think about work depending upon the amount of agency you have where you work? Because if you are a a worker who basically is doing something that's metaphorically or maybe actually like being on the assembly line, your job is to do what they tell you anyway right? And if that's your job, then it's hard to be a certain kind of culture creator in that job, right, in that moment. On the other hand, if you are in management, or if you are the owner, then you you have a kind of agency where you're asking questions about, if I care about embodiment, then how am I thinking about the way that our workspace is designed and, and really what our expectations are of our workers. How am I encouraging them to work in ways that are good for them as embodied persons rather than how I can just wear them out? You know, instead of burnout being a virtue, trying to think about how you can have hard work, but work that isn't undermining people's embodiment, but 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 you can actually find ways of flourishing. it's, it's just one example uh, of doing that. I have three minutes, so I'm going to move on to two other things. What about the way that we think about the end of life, particularly the way we think about death? We are a culture that likes to think that death is optional, right? Even with a COVID 19 pandemic, et cetera, still, you know, the United States of America is like, you know, just give us enough time. Let's give us another time. We, we, we will overcome even death, you see. This is not going to happen, but, but this is what some, the way that some people are, in their confidence. And in that confidence, and in, in, in our looking forward about things, there's this way of not wanting to attend to mortality. And here's the thing. Eschatology actually enables us to take our lives seriously. Because I talked about embodiment but not to make our lives idols because until Jesus comes back, death is one for one, but death is not the end because the resurrection of Christ is the guarantee of our resurrection. So there's more life or life after life, life after death. So if that, if that happens, then how is that informing how we are perceiving and responding to the lives that we have? How are we stewarding them well without worshiping them? Last, with one minute, this is probably a terrible thing to say, but eschatology and our politics. So, maybe I'll go over just a moment. But, for some people, uh, eschatology has meant um, discerning... um, the purpose of our country in God's plan. I'd like to disabuse all of you of this uh, effort because the Bible doesn't talk about anything this, on this side of the Atlantic, except for, except for the ends of the earth or all the nations. So, uh, so please don't try to make the United States of America the centerpiece of what God's doing in salvation history. That's a mistake. God cares about his world, and we're part of his world, but we are not the center of the narrative. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is that no matter where you are in world history, you will see that whatever is happening politically is that political leaders all, A, have a shelf life, nations have an expiration date, and none of that should make you nervous. It just should, tell, it just should give you perspective that whatever is going on where we are, okay, God is greater than whatever is happening in any one nation. Sometimes what do people do? Oh, look what's happening to our nation. It must mean that somehow God can't handle it, they said, after they left the Easter service. If God can overcome death, I think he can handle whatever political circumstances we have. So what what does it mean if you really believe in resurrection? Resurrection. What does it mean if you really believe that God's kingdom is going to be established? In fact, what does it mean for your politics if you really believe that God is king and not any particular country or political party or figure, et cetera? What does that mean? How does that help you to be politically involved but to resist being politically idolatrous? To, As Ben Sass put it, uh, Senator Ben Sasse was I helped moderate a conversation with him earlier this year. He said... You know, to give two cheers for politics rather than like five cheers for politics. Right? For for it to be something that we do is one of the ways that we can think about, you know, loving our neighbors in in larger ways, but it's not everything. It's unavoidable, but it's not everything. All right. I could keep going once. I'm going to stop, and Jim's going to come up, and then I'll come back.
2: All right. All right, so around around your tables, discuss what's a a question that you want to send in. What's a question that's hanging there? You can continue to text them in, and we'll get to as many as we can. So go ahead and discuss that now. Send in those questions, and then we'll come back for some Q&A in a minute. All right, let's go ahead and bring it in. Thanks for the great questions that you have been sending in. Um, I want to start us off. uh, I thought this was a fantastic question here. Um, It says our imaginations have been so formed by rapture, theology, 666, bad films. Um, What I'm going to add a second part to this question. First of all, how did we get there? Why, how are we, how come this, this, these ideas, many of them being relatively new are the dominant ideas that if people haven't even read the Bible, they have some sense that it's kind of like the movie you showed. Why, uh, how do we get there?
1: Because uh, you had the, the intersection of, A downward turn in in things happening historically after the Civil War, and and the theology associated with the Rapture has a negative interpretation of history. Second, you had people who were great communicators using modern means of communication, tracts, pamphlets, and radio, and a lot of very well-trained preachers um, who would who would communicate uh, that particular version theology. Then, because part of what the, the rapture theology requires, uh, in the most popular versions, it requires a distinction between the Gentile people of God as one people of God and ethnic Israel as a people of God. And the, and the rapture is, is the removal of the Gentiles, and it, it creates, the, the clock starts back up sort of in the history of Israel, and this is when uh, Israel would get converted in the tribulation, and then you get the millennium, and, and God fulfills promises that he made to the Israelites. And so there was a lot of very popular um, communication about that. Uh, and then part, part of the Israel, the Israel thing is important, is that 1948, Israel becomes a nation again. Uh, and then you have things like it, 1969, 1970, Hal Lindsey writing the late, late Great Plan Earth. That includes that. Uh, version of, of of eschatology, and you know it was a bestseller, so all those types of things were were factors. Yeah. at
0: one sense, yeah, I, I don't know, but I wonder too whether uh, in the second half of the twentieth century, American evangelicals, in particular, like feeling increasingly more like a persecuted minority, or there's a sense of like culture war, and a sense like we're losing, and almost the basketball game analogy, like well, the hope feels it becomes other worldly escapist out there, it feels like you have a climate that's ripe against a historical backdrop of maybe the church having more social and cultural influence. And as that gets pulled away, there's an increasing um, uh, desirability yeah. of something yeah. like that. Like, well, hey, we'll get out of here in the end. And-
1: there, there, there's an attraction to that and also the Cold War yeah. uh, and there being this other superpower that conveniently fits uh, certain narratives about, you know, where the beast is going to come from. And it's Russia. It's right? China, well, well, I mean, it's right. it is interesting if you notice the accent of a lot of times the people that are playing the Antichrist. It's yes. it's not a Western European one. Let's put it that way. Well,
2: you, you, you know what? I think something you brought up is very interesting in that it feels like it's the... Certain positions like that have done a better job of shaping the imaginations and aiming at the right brain of humans. Whereas a lot of other, um, you know, even more historic Mm -hmm. theological views have... uh, they just write boring books, man. They, they, they're not making movies and the, the images the, and stuff.
1: The, 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 the skillful use of communication strategies is definitely a huge part of it.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think it's such, and it, what's sad to me about that is that it is such a beautiful vision of Christ restoring all that's broken, wiping away the tears from the eyes of those who weep, uh, that that should shape our imaginations in in such rich ways
1: i mean they would say that christ wipes away the tears of those who weep i mean but it's after all the yeah. series of events oh, totally totally total. but you're right but you're right yeah. it, but it does often include or imply you know blowing up the death star death star earth yeah
2: well the, the second part of that question there was what what are some good resources that you would recommend that people would engage
1: um, if you if you want to do the survey approach there's always there's four views and five views books about eschatologies. those are good intervarsity press or uh or zondervan has has those books um, i think it's a good way to to see uh, the the breadth of that um i mean for certainly there there are um accessible uh, systematic theology books. Um, uh, Greg Boyd and Paul Eddy did, did a book called Across the Spectrum that also uh, has it, it, it covers those that, that range of eschatologies as well. And I, and I think it's good to, to to look at the range of them just because because it's not that everything that people are saying in these positions mm-hmm. is wrong, mm-hmm. right? But but you, it helps you to see how people um, in what their larger frame of interpretation is you know, and what they're emphasizing and magnifying
2: yeah.
0: my favorite i throw out there is uh it's by richard bacham it's called uh, i think the the book of revelation or the theology of mm-hmm. the book of revelation mm-hmm. and it's a short book it's only 125 pages or so but it's really good really tight amazing and then another not to uh this is the. let me say it okay. let me
2: say it <laughs> skeletons in god's closet
1: all right <laughs> he's
2: he, no it is it is he's got some really rich reflections on eschatology there and then look at his footnotes too yeah all right next one <laughs> he was waiting for me to promote his other book <laughs> uh, all right a couple questions on millennium what's what's the deal with on-mill, ah, pre-mill, post-mill. Can you give a snapshot of what that is? And then uh, and then tell us what you are.
0: Vince, do you wanna take this one?
2: <laughs> Let's start with the snapshot of when people are talking about millennium yes. stuff yes. and you're embarrassed to say, what what is that? Yeah, right. Give us a primer. Uh,
1: a thousand years of peace are mentioned in Revelation chapter 20 verses one through six. So that's when Satan is bound and because he's bound, then he can't deceive the nation. So you have a time of peace. So it is very interesting. I think this is really important that Josh said. You wind up having just those six verses being very prominent in the framing of some people's eschatology. So if you're at least if you are um, a certain kind of what's called a pre-millennialist. So what does that mean? All right. Because it can just get dizzying here. All right. So, so, so here, here's the thing to think about. When does Jesus return in relationship to this 1,000 years? Is it before the millennium, hence pre-millennial? Is it after the millennium, hence post-millennial? Or do you say, really, the millennium is a symbolic interpretation of what's happening from the time of the, the incarnation until Jesus returns, and that's generally what an amillennial view would, would say, but but um, so that's basi- That that's do the it. that's the basic view. Of things. But then you see you have kinds of premillennialists, and some kind, sometimes kinds of postmillennialists as well. So my problem with postmillennialism is that essentially it's a view that says that, that there are things that we do, and until we do them, Jesus doesn't come back. And some of the strongest forms of that would say it is up to us to establish the kingdom. I've already put my cards on the table about not going with establish the kingdom type of language. So, to, so, so a post-millennial perspective um, often has to do with you know, making the kingdom happen. There are some who will say it's, it's just about evangelizing to the whole earth. And when the whole earth has been evangelized, then, then, but, but, but still it's something that's done and, when, and, and that accomplishment of that thing is the establishing of the millennium. You know, in other words, everything coming under the reign of Christ. Um, so uh, where am I? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, now, I could do the cop-out, which is a pan-millennialist, right? Which means... <laughs> uh, it all pans, it, it all pans yeah. out in the end, right? Um, <laughs> uh, I would say... This is a very Bacodian answer that's coming. Um, I'm a soft pre-millennialist, which means that I see more plausibility for an amillennial view than I used to. Um, definitely not a post-millennialist. I just can't get there. I, I just can't. Yeah. I mean, I have friends and I have students who, it's like, hey. But I, I, I can't, Yeah.
2: so. I'm a strong post-millennial. No, I'm just saying. <laughs> Soft, ah don't like the framework yeah. altogether.
0: Yeah. Oh, man, don't ask me. Do it. Do it. <laughs> I'm going to get these, myself these, in trouble. These are your people, Have man. I ever
2: told Do you this? I ever told you
1: this?
2: Oh, no.
0: Like, I don't... I, I, Is this I, the end? I, don't, I have a different view. Like, I don't know the, all, any of the three, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same,
2: same here. But if you yeah. had to get into... The-
0: well, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, I believe that the millennium was a literal thousand years, but that it already happened. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh so, okay.
2: So so
1: so, 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 does that mean, okay, here's another term. I, I shouldn't even be putting preterist. this term. Well, you said it, not well, me. Yeah, preterist. Yeah. yeah. yeah preterist a, a, on, a, but I'm not a, that either. A A, certain but a, a, kind a partial of preterist,
2: preterist, meaning a partial that, preterist? Meaning a that preterist? the, yeah. the last it's, it's, couple chapters are still to come, right? Yeah. Okay, you're still a Christian. Good job. <laughs>
1: It, it would the, take too yeah, long the, to the, yeah. the term preterist means past fulfillment right and there are people who like www.preterist.org where there are people who would say they're, they're full preterists, which means they believe that jesus symbolically came back when jerusalem was destroyed in 70 a.d so yeah. that's so a my, hard that, that's a hard position to have my standby is short would be I think
0: Christendom, about the 5th to 15th century, a thousand years, when the dragon of the Roman Empire was oh, <sighs> crumbled, okay. yeah, yeah. that Christ, through his body, through his church, you know, had influence all in, the, in the kind of aftermath. But then the modern era, there was a reemergence of the, what the dragon and the beast kind of represent okay. this kind of okay. reemergence of right. um, secular, autonomous pursuit of ruling the earth apart from God. And sort of the bloody havoc and destruction of that unleashed okay.
2: the modern era all right so let's do a podcast on this i think this will be a great discussion um let's do some like rapid okay. um fire real life stuff all right. all right um i'm gonna throw some fun things that they texted in and then we'll should we end on the fun or end on the heavy you guys get to choose all right, but, we'll end on the phone. Oh, oh, well, okay, there it
1: was. All right. I, I was going to ask for a show of hands, but.
2: Um, but. Actually, there's one, one question I want to get to before, um, and I think this can be a brief one, but I think it's an important one. If eschatology is an open-handed issue, then why should Christians study or care about the specifics of what the Bible actually teaches on the subject? Here's, here's the deal. Uh, I'm being a bad moderator. Uh, it's not an open-handed issue if when it comes to is is mm-hmm. Jesus going to return. It's not an open-handed issue of it, does God uh make things right. Uh does God wipe away the tears from their eyes. There are a number of things that if you deny these things that it these are not open-handed issues. But What's open-handed are the specific nuances of saying, how does the particular Old Testament imagery and how it's being used, um, how was it understood? How does it bear out? And how are the implications? So the millennial stuff, Mm -hmm. that's an open-handed issue. Mm -hmm. Um, But the, and, and then why does it matter that we talk about it? Here's the thing. This is so important. When revelation is being written, it's not being written to a bunch of people who uh, have charts up on their walls and they're like having these interested conversations. It's about people who are living in the Roman Empire, these seven churches it talks about in the beginning, who are struggling with what does it look like to be faithful to Jesus in this particular time with, with these particular challenges. And it speaks to us about how do we, follow Jesus in this in this time and in this place. Uh, yeah.
1: And uh, Here's another reason why I say it's, it's, it's important. If you know the end of the story, yeah. and, you, and you may be aware of the fact that a lot of people are running around like they're crazy right now. Uh, why, why? Because they have a lot of fear, they have a lot of uncertainty, and it's like they don't know where things are going. If you're a Christian, you know where it's going. And if you live like you know where it's going, then it ought to make a difference in what your disposition is and you can be and because you know that things have not wrapped up yet you you expect there to be distressing things you shouldn't be surprised by that but you also know that that's not the last word god gets the last word and you know that so because you know that it can be like you know you can be like that person that you know watches horror movies or reads horror novels but you know because you read the end of the story, or you fast forwarded to the end before you watched the rest of it, you know where this is going. And because you do, you're never really too overwhelmed by it. You might have some personal moments where it's kind of hard, but when you remember what you really believe, then you're the person who says, yes, it's madness. But madness has an expiration date. These things are always threatening to be the final word, but there's always a comma after them. No period till Jesus shows up. Always a comma after those things. And if that's what we really know, why do we know that? We know that because we understand the essentials of eschatology.
2: Getting into some of the specifics, just to lay it out, why it matters. I mean, you've mentioned several of them. Your work and your vocation. Like, it matters because it says, Look, life is not going to be easy and perfect and vocational fruitfulness is not always going to work out and you're not going to bring the entirety of the kingdom in your nine to five. Jesus one day will. And you're going to encounter some challenges, but you can bear witness to the day when he wipes all the tears from eyes. For the person who's like suffering through uh, cancer or multiple miscarriages you're going to know that there's a day when God puts death to death that's why it matters when you feel like a fool for following this Jesus uh, like probably many of the people did in the first century um, you know that there's a day uh, when that's going to be vindicated and made right
0: Totally. Yeah, one other thing I mentioned is like the power of hope. Like I think we often think of hope as like pie in the sky, escapist, otherworldly, but the reality is I think what you hope in breaks into your present. It shapes and informs your present experience, how you live here and now, the power of hope to actually transform. So I've noticed a lot. a lot of my friends over the years who either do not know Jesus or have walked away from Jesus or whatever, um, but that there is often a brooding despair I've noticed in many, you know, especially as they kind of come to grips with what just feels like there's nothing in the end. And so you got to get it all in now. And that, that's one aspect, like their lack of hope or their hope in something else, you know, is, is, is impacting their present experience. Or one other example, I think part of, many have argued that part of the reason that right now politics, as you said, two, you know, like important. But it's become such an idol is because we've lost the bigger horizon of the kingdom Mm. like if you no longer believe god's kingdom he is sovereignly going to come and fix and establish and restore and do all that if you don't have that coming then all we have left is ourselves and all of our energy then gets invested in um how can we get our person in charge from whatever side how can we get our policies how can we do our thing we can lose charity we can lose Uh, Christian virtues in how we engage because suddenly we no longer have the horizon of the kingdom where we have stability and security. It impacts our present because then we start to make idols out of the things that we're now looking to deliver us rather than the eschatological hope of God's coming
2: kingdom. Amen. Let's end with three absurd things that they threw out here and see if it can relate. All right. You guys ready for this? Sure. All right. Dishes. Washing the Dishes. How does eschatology affect the way that you do dishes?
1: Vince? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um,
1: Well, on the one hand, you know, dishes themselves are good things, right? So that's Mm -hmm. a good technology and there may be something like that in the kingdom. In terms of the the washing of dishes, you know, the fact that, you know, if it actually gets
2: done, Mm -hmm.
1: well, maybe that's telling us something about a glimpse into the fact that something's going to get done finally.
2: Yeah, there's a uh, there's someone in this church who when they do um, laundry, uh, what they do is they they remind themselves that they are enacting and giving a foretaste of what God is going to do when he renews and restores all things. I like that a lot. (laughs) Um, I think there's also something to be said about the microbiological warfare that's happening when you kill uh, stuff on the plates that would harm image bearers mm-hmm. you are not fully going to protect their, their body from the effects of death but you are giving a foretaste of the kingdom when you are subduing dishes right <laughs> alright uh, we'll, do, we'll do one more sleep
0: mm, I'll go there that's, that's <laughs> yeah, Sabbath rest. You know, the, the future that um, many many scholars would say that in, even at the end of Genesis 1, you have the climax in the Sabbath rest of God, and that, that it's not presented as, okay, it's done. It's actually launching a project that is pointing towards the ultimate Sabbath rest, which is God's Sabbath rest with us in the kingdom come, full creation. And so when we, I love the psalm that says, God works while we're sleeping. Like when we entrust ourselves to God, I think sleep can be a form of trusting ourselves to mm-hmm. God and that he is working even while we're sleeping. And in entrusting ourselves to God in rest and seizing from our labors, we're anticipating the great and final rest, the consummation of all things. Yes.
2: If Jesus is the one who's, who's going to make all things right, if he's the Savior, then you guys go and sleep like a baby tonight because that doesn't have to be you. So... Let's end with that. Let's pray and uh, feel free to stick around and uh, spend some time, ask your crazy questions and uh, have a good conversation. So, God, we're thankful for the reality that you uh, make all things new. Uh, we thank you that there's uh, a day that's coming when the, the, the physical pain that people are feeling in their bodies right now, the, the social pain. Uh, complexities of relationships, the broad uh, problems in society will be no more. And that Jesus, you are the one who is the answer to that. And we pray that you would make us a people who uh, bear witness to that reality, who give a foretaste and a preview of what is to come. And we pray that, uh, that we would do that tonight as we uh, spend time with one another and we sleep well knowing that you are the king and you do not sleep nor slumber. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, give these folks a hand and uh, have a good night. (laughs) Great to be here. Thanks
1: for listening to this episode of the All of Life podcast. To get more information on Redemption Church Tempe, you can download the Redemption Tempe app, Or you can send an email to Tempe at RedemptionAZ.com.